Welcome to Intriguing Interviews, where fascinating people share captivating stories. I'm Chad Elliott, your tour guide on this audio hitchhiking journey. Today, we'll continue our exploration of the bizarre life of Rick Archer. But to prepare us for that loss of innocence, I'll share with you my secret method for picking up women that explains why I was single for a long, long time. One day, when I was about 12 years old, I lay in bed watching QVC, the home shopping network, as you do when you're homeschooled, at least homeschooled the way I was, which means just left alone. And the motivational speaker, Tony Robbins, came on the TV, making all sorts of promises that appealed to a shy and lonely young boy and shouting, what you believe you can achieve. So I ran up the street to the local library and borrowed his personal power to audio program. Soon I was writing down goals like get friends, have a girlfriend, make $8 billion. All the kinds of things he said to write down. But no matter how hard I believed, I didn't achieve. So I kept visiting the library, searching for the secret. I was sure these self-help books and tapes would help me, but I feared my success would only come once I left home, which meant years of waiting. But one day, I was out for a walk and a pretty girl stopped me. She said, your name's Chad, isn't it? I said, yeah, how did you know? Because even though my hometown was tiny, almost nobody knew me. The girl smiled. She said, I'm Trish. When we were little, we played together. I said, we did? She said, yeah, I I guess it was a long time ago. What's new with you? Of course, nothing was new with me, except that I was reading Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. So I said, oh, um, uh, not much, and just kind of stammered my way through a short, awkward conversation. Then I walked home with my thoughts racing. A pretty girl was once my friend. Maybe we'll be friends again. Maybe she'll be my girlfriend. Maybe we're meant for each other, enigmatic beings who can only be happy together. I imagined an idyllic future that made a Hallmark movie seem dystopian. About a month later, I saw Trish talking with a couple of girls by our town's gas station. I told myself, now's the time. I've got another chance. She's the one. My inner Tony Robbins shouted, what you believe you can achieve. With my heart in my throat, I strode towards Trish. Interrupting her and her friend's conversation, I gasped out an anxious, Hi! They all turned toward me, and Trish recognized me and said, Uh, hey, how's it going? I blurted out, Do you want to go on a date with me? She froze for a moment. Then she said, No. I said, okay, and just turned and walked away. My insides burned and I berated myself. Stupid. What were you thinking? Never try that again. And I didn't. Not for a very, very long time.
We all have times in our lives when we desperately want more for ourselves, and we hatch what we think are brilliant plans to help us accomplish that. But often, our attempts to escape from our troubles only dig us a deeper hole from which it seems impossible to crawl out. When we're children, this can be devastating. When kids do things hoping to fit in, they often alienate themselves even more. At its worst, you can see this lead to the violence in schools, many of which are now filled with metal detectors. School shootings now happen with frightening regularity, and this makes you wonder, is it possible to stop a child from falling into that pit of despair and even turning into a killer? And if so, how can we stop that? My interview with Rick Archer might answer that. This is the second interview in my experimental series with Rick, where we're covering his journey from creepy loser kid to the country's most popular dance teacher. In our first interview, Rick told us how a ride in a limousine away from a bungled camping trip turned him into the friendless poor kid in a school of the wealthy elite. And he shared how he hatched a plan to become popular with girls by becoming a star basketball player. This time, we'll find out how that plan went horribly wrong. We'll also hear how he came within an inch of killing another boy. We'll learn what stopped him and discover how a cigarette locker and a mountain of strawberries turned his life around. So put in your pocket protector, put away your homework, and get ready for the further adventures of Rick Archer. My mother... Who is kind of your antagonist throughout your entire childhood. My mother and I, uh, my mother and I have very few warm moments, but my mother can't stand pimples, Ah. but she can't afford to send me to a dermatologist. So my mother has this little plan, pop the pimples, clean them with cotton, sterilize with isopropyl alcohol. We did it three times that summer. Okay. And it, it appeared to work. The pimples dried up. And these were just random pimples, like just you had a single one on the chin or something. Right, right. Just a, just a normal attack of childhood teenage acne. Okay. It's October. It's maybe a week before basketball practice. Mm-hmm. So here we go. It's, a just, it's just the nastiest thing. I do not enjoy this at all. It's actually kind of humiliating to have your mother... I, who who would enjoy that really? It's no no. It's very humiliating for a teenage boy. Yeah. So she cleans it with uh, the isopropyl alcohol, and I go to bed. And my life is never the same in the morning. I wake up and my face is burning. So I put my hands on my cheeks, and realize that my cheeks are swollen. My face is suddenly whiter. Uh-huh. I'm suddenly panic stricken then i run to the bathroom i look in the mirror and both sides of my face are covered with these volcanic mountains of red pimples upon pimples upon pimples a face with maybe a hundred pimples oh god how is this possible uh. of course i go to my mother and i say what and she says, wow, well, you, you, you had a pretty serious reaction, but I wouldn't worry about it. I'm, I'm sure it'll go away in a day or two. At least she didn't, offer to, she didn't offer to poke in all of those that were there. 
Oh my God! You would—I mean, I'm telling you, my face looked like a red balloon. <laughs> it was that swollen. <laughs> I even go to school. Mom says, "Is that a good idea? Maybe you should stay home and let the pimples clear up." And I said, "No, Mom." So I get on my bicycle and I ride to school, and the halls part like the Red <laughs> Sea. So Houston's wealthy elite send their children to St. John's. There is no such thing as an ugly child at St. John's. If their teeth aren't straight, they get braces. If they're nearsighted, they get contacts. If they have the slightest problem with their complexion, they go straight to a doctor. That's why there's no such thing as an imperfect child at St. John's. And suddenly into their midst is this teenage werewolf wearing a Freddy Krueger mask of red pimples the size of a red balloon. And they are shocked beyond belief because the last time they saw me, yesterday I was a (laughs) normal-looking kid. This is a nightmare of the greatest magnitude. I've I've seen pictures on your website. Oh, it was awful. Well, actually, there are no pictures exist of um, that particular point. I, I couldn't bear to take a picture. Yes, but of afterwards. But, but, I, but I got the point across. So what happens? You know, Mr. Curran, you know, the one, my, my English teacher who likes me, he pulls me aside, he says, what's wrong? And I tell him what happened and I just burst out crying and he doesn't, he doesn't even know what to say. He just puts his arm around me and lets me cry. So sad. So day two, and my mother says, it's just getting worse. You cannot go to school today. And I say, Mom, today are the basketball tryouts. I will not miss the basketball tryouts for anything. Those are your ticket to popularity. This is my stardom. This is my vehicle. I'm going to school no matter what. Now, I have to tell you, the coach doesn't really like me. Because I bailed on him the year before. Oh, yeah. He knows I'm funny about this blind eye. Which you weren't really funny about the blind eye. He just didn't understand what was going on. Well, here's the deal. This coach, he was terrified of a lawsuit. Oh. And so he really made it difficult for me to go out for the team. Because he didn't want you to get... He didn't want me to get blindsided and get my knee busted or, or have a concussion or or whatever. So I went to Coach Lee, you know, head of the department, and Coach Lee said, well, if your mother will sign a waiver, I will I will overrule the coach and let you go out for the team. Mind you, this is a serious issue because Coach Lee really liked me. He, I had gone out for football the year before in the eighth mm-hmm. grade, and I was and I was pretty good. I was on the starting team, but one day, this um, wide receiver went downfield and then came in from behind me on my blind side and hit me so hard with a block, he knocked me out. And when I woke up, Coach Lee, the first thing he says is, Rick, this is what I warned you about. Don't you see why I, war- why I didn't want you to play football? And Coach Lee says, what makes you think the same thing isn't going to happen in basketball? And I said, well, I play basketball all the time on on the playground. I should be okay. 
And he says, well, it's true that people don't hit as hard in basketball. I'll let you try. But here's my point. The basketball coach was not happy to see me. Sure. And when he saw how gruesome my face looked, he just like, <laughs> he gave me the most horrible look of disgust. It's like, are you serious? Which, you know, you would think that he would be kind of excited. Like maybe the other team, like if you had the ball, they would be too scared to go near you. And you well, could just now, don't do get it. me started, but that's the theory of golf. People <laughs> wear hideous clothing in golf because they figure it'll intimidate the other golfers so bad that they won't be able to concentrate. So good point. I appreciate your gruesome sense of humor, <laughs> but you're right. I was truly hideous. But we had a drill, and he had to let me participate. It's called a, a three-man, don't-dribble-the-ball layup drill. Okay. A passes to B. B passes to C. C passes back to A. A lays the ball up. It's, it's a famous basketball drill. Okay. I'm running down the right side of the court. So the other two boys are on my blind side. I alternate between looking at the boys and looking where I'm going. Okay. So I'm looking right at the boy with the ball uh -huh. just as I turn my head back to see where I was going. He sees me look at him. He throws the pass uh. 20 feet away. It hits me right on the side of my, the left side of my face, my blind side. It hits me dead center on this mountain of pimples. The pain was not immediate. After 20 seconds my face exploded as all these compressed pustules Ugh. started to scream in agony. The pain was unbearable. I couldn't even stand up. My God. First, I dropped to my knees. The pain wouldn't go away. Then I laid down on the floor and grabbed a towel and covered my head. And I was kicking my feet and pounding with one of my free hands. Five, I don't know, but it was several minutes. Yeah. Burning, burning. Finally, it went away, but I was scared. I had never known this kind of pain before. And every and there was a whole crowd around me. There must have been 20 boys. Why, why are you so hurt? They didn't have a clue what was wrong with me. Which you would think they could see from your face. They had no idea what. They thought that I'd been hit so hard that I was like, you know, like being hit by a baseball. I mean, basketball doesn't hurt like that, but that's that's what they concluded. Okay. And I wasn't going to tell them the truth. So I staggered to the locker room. I just sit there and stare. Now, we all know of Achilles. Achilles has one weak spot, his vulnerable Achilles heel. And magically, Paris, the archer, hits Achilles from 100 yards away. It just defies reality, correct? Yeah. So Homer suggests, Homer who wrote the Iliad suggests, maybe Apollo guided the arrow. Now that makes a little more sense, right? If a god intercedes, anything's possible, right? Sure. And I'm sitting there thinking about my Greek mythology. I'm an expert <laughs> on Greek mythology because... Because that summer that I, you know, <laughs> broke my ankle, guess what I read all summer? And I'm thinking, I'm just like Achilles. This boy has thrown a basketball at a moving target from 20 feet away and hit me in the one spot 
they would absolutely devastate me. You know, for like a freshman in high school, you're very, uh, it's a very like unique thought process. It's a very, you know, that you go. Oh, because I, because I know all about Achilles. He's my, he, because no one understands him. He's my favorite hero. He's, you know, he's got this one flaw, but he's really cool. You know okay. what I mean? Yeah. I conclude that this ball was meant to hit me. There's something wrong in my life. I don't know what it is. Ah, but so it's not like it's not like oh, I was meant to hit me. This is guiding me in a better direction. Oh, I wasn't thinking good. Okay. I mean, I didn't know what what the what the future was. You felt maybe it was like for a reason like it's uh, uh I didn't even think in terms of uh what was coming down the road. All I knew was I was not coming back. Yeah. Someone was telling me, you're done. Forget it. It's over. So you gave up. I just gave up. I had this sense of hopelessness about me. My fate, I was a leper. Mm-hmm. And my and I, how was I ever going to play basketball with a face like this? Yeah. But I have one more thing to add. Yeah. And this may be even the most key point. So I have a mother. She's a mess emotionally, but she's an intelligent human being. My father is responsible for my health insurance. Okay. He's he's doing pretty well. He has a little money in the bank these days. So he should help you with your face. One would think that since there's not going to be a dime coming out of my mother's pocket, she might consider taking me to a doctor. Wouldn't you think? I would think that, yes. So Monday goes by the first day. Tuesday goes by. And then Wednesday, I get hit by a basketball. Okay. My mother finally gives in and decides to take me to the doctor. Brilliant move. And you know what? The the first thing the doctor says is, he says, why didn't you come to me sooner? Uh. That's... First thing out of his mouth. And he asked me. <laughs> My mother is is just like sitting over in the corner and he says, like, young man, what took you so long? And I turn and look at my mother and she's like ashen faced and never says a word. And does he say that if if you'd come in sooner? He probably could have done something, but it had an 80 hour head start. Gotcha. And the and and it wasn't something you could just cure overnight. It would be a year and a half before he finally got the thing under control. Wow. Because my mother waited instead of reacting immediately. What mother sees a boy wake up with his face full of pimples and a face the size of a red balloon and doesn't take him to the doctor? Just one. Just me. But I came up with a conclusion. It may have taken me 20, 30, 40 years to come to this conclusion. I remembered how my mother went insane the time she took me to Virginia in the middle of a blinding snowstorm. Yeah. I had thought back then that something had come over my mother. Like maybe she was under some kind of like spell. I mean, I didn't know anything about psychology or anything, but my mother was not the same person. She was like, had this crazed look in her eye Yeah. during the, the snowstorm. And now she had that same 
crazed look in her eye. It's like something had made my mother stupid. <laughs> and I don't mean in a in a in a Sigmund Freud kind of way. I mean something in a mystical kind of way. Okay. That maybe her son was fated to be disfigured. The reason I say this is because I'm 70 years old. I mean, I'm talking about something that happened to me when I'm 14. But the acne would literally change my life in such a way that one day I would own the largest dance studio in America. I literally can trace stepping stones that started with this disfigurement. So I am telling you that I can't prove that fate exists, but I have, I have a, a lot of reasons to be very curious. Well, let's look how the rest of your high school proceeded after that. Uh, I think probably like one of the, the if we can, <laughs> I guess we can go slightly. Don't, don't, just go ahead and blurt it out, huh? I was going to say like it's a low low point that's kind of the low point but um so just tell me briefly about the the locker room incident. Oh, believe it or not, I still have not hit the low point. <laughs> <laughs> Things just kept getting worse. Once the acne disappeared, I thought I would be good to go. When the acne disappeared, I realized that my face was rutted with craters and valleys and fissures and chasms, just like the moonscape. I mean, I had peaks and valleys like you wouldn't (laughs) believe. Hideous. While I had the acne, I, I always had tomorrow, hey, but when it clears up, I'll be okay again. I'll be my old self. The acne was not permanent, but the scars were. Yeah. So... That's that's when I really went into a tailspin. I am the poorest kid in the school. I am the most socially awkward kid in the school. And now I'm the ugliest kid in the school to boot. Sure. I mean, it can't get much worse. All right, sometime early in my sophomore year, my uh, actually at the end of my freshman year, the um dermatologist said, uh, we have this procedure called um, dermal abrasion, where we clear your, you know, where we ice your skin down. We make it super cold, doesn't hurt, and then we sand off all your skin. Like a piece of wood. Yep. You know, we sand it down, and then um, scabs grow over, and when the scabs peel, your skin is, you have new skin, and the um, scars will be gone. So I get a dermal abrasion in the summer. I got to tell you this story. That's a good story. Get this. This really pretty girl likes me. Her name was Jane. She lived a block away. Jane went to the public school across the street from St. John's. She was really pretty, but she was really shy. She was thin and tall, and and she was a nerd. (laughs) Guess what I was? A nerd. (laughs) I, too, was a nerd. Well, Jane knew that I was getting this special operation. And she couldn't wait for me to come out of it because I said I was going to cheer up after I got my face back. So here she is down the street wondering how the uh, 
operation is it's the summertime, right? Well, I want to see Jane in the worst way, but I can't. I have these scabs all over my face. So get get here we go again. With I put on a bag. I put a paper bag over my head. Oh God! And I cut out two <laughs> holes where the eyes would go and a mouth. And I walk down the street. Jane sees me. She runs out and she says, "How did it go? How did it go? Are the scars gone?" And I said, "Well, I don't know yet." She says, "Take the bag off." Oh no, Jane! I, I'm hideous. I don't want you to see me like this, but I'll be okay. She says, well, Rick, I have a question. I said, what? She says, well, you're blind in in your left eye. What did you cut a (laughs) hole out for? (laughs) And I just, it's like I start shaking my head back and forth. (laughs) I said, well, you have a good point there, Jane. The next time I I come out, I'll make sure my bag only has one eye in it. Well, a week later, the scabs start to come off. It doesn't look good. The the scars are better. They're 50% improved. But when you're talking about 50% of the most hideous case of scarring in human history, it's still pretty bad. I'm still still pretty bad. Pretty bad. So I say, Dad, I get on the phone. I said, Dad, thank you for paying for the first one. I realized that um You've paid your deductible now, so the next one won't be very expensive. Maybe just like three hundred dollars or something. I want so we argue and we argue, and he finally gives in. He gives me a second operation over Christmas of, and now I'm in my sophomore year of high school. Here we go again, fifty percent. I have now eradicated seventy-five percent of the scarring. Nice. But 25% is less. And the doctor is very pleased. It's only 25% of the worst. 25% is almost, I'm almost okay. The doctor says, I am really pleased. And in my experience, I think one more will do it. And I said, but my, my father, his, you know, his deductible, he's already paid his deductible. He would have to pay a new deductible. He won't do that. Oh, because it was right. It, was, it would be in the next because year. Because it was a new year. Gotcha. It was the new year, new deductible. The doctor says, I already thought of that. I'm going to cut my price in half. Oh. I really want this for you. Why don't you go to your father? My father said, um, no. And I said, why not, Dad? I really need this. And he says, I'm sorry. It's too expensive. I said, but Dad, this is my life. This is my face. I've done the math. It won't be but three or four hundred dollars, which is you know significant money in those days. But it was with the it was something he could afford. Mm-hmm. He says, "No, I, I just can't afford it. I've got two children of my own. I got bills to pay. I'm sorry." Which you are. You are a third children of his own. I mean, you. I uh, yeah, good point. I said, "Well, Dad, I have I have a suggestion. You've been saving money for my." Since the sixth grade, with your college pledge, why don't you take the money out of that and give me my operation? And he says, well, uh, that money's gone. And I said, why? Why is the money gone? He says, I already used it up paying for your first two operations. Oh, what a bastard. 
It gets worse. You just, you got to keep hearing my stories. It gets even worse. But <laughs> you're right. I wanted to strangle the man. I wanted to absolutely strangle the man. But there was nothing I could do about it. He held, you know, he held his ground. He said, it ain't going to happen. Forget it. Don't call me. Leave me alone. And that was it. I was stuck with what I had. Time to move on. Well. I would say maybe a month later, it's getting to be spring. I'm 15 now. I'm walking in from gym. My face is still a mess, but it ain't as bad as it used to be. But here's the deal. I'm off of the um, tetracycline, the stuff that keeps the uh, acne under control. Mm -hmm. Son of a bitch, my face breaks out again. Not as bad as before. But here we go again. Yeah. Well, I'm, I come in from gym. It's in the afternoon. I'm coming in from gym. I'm sweaty. I'm the first guy back. Three guys file in right behind me. That doesn't sound good. No. They're, they're in the ninth grade. I'm in the tenth grade. They're a year behind me. Okay. Well, there's this one guy. Harold files in behind me, and he says, Hey, Dickless, turn around. Let me look at you. That's his favorite name for me. It's Dickless Dick, boys, the boy with the who's the Clearasil kid. Hey, we have ourselves a celebrity. Show us your face, Dick. Holy, look at that, a face only a mother could love. Oh, my God. Dickless, you know what? You are one son of a bitch, creepy loser kid. How do you even look at yourself in the mirror every morning? Oof. Well, I'm telling you, I want to kill him. He does not sound like an upstanding young man. I absolutely want to kill him. And if he had been by himself, I would have tried. But you don't fight at St. John's. We are genteel. We are civilized creatures who are taught not to fight. The upper crust. Right. Well... The kids at my school, they fight with words. Now, I am already humiliated. And they have the upper hand, and there's three of them. You know what I mean? If I don't, if one can't think of something funny to say, the other will say it. So one person sure. says something funny, and the other two laugh. Am I going to win this war of words? Hell no. There's not a damn thing I can do about it. But, you know, my head dropped. And walk into the locker room and hope it stops. So we're the first four people back in the locker room. And when I get into the uh, shower, guess who's waiting for me? Harold and his friends. Now, one of these days, you got to ask me the story about the taxi cab driver. Because it's a great story. But for right now, let's just say the taxi cab driver pulled me aside one day. And taught me how to fight dirty. Ah, uh, that was uh, that was one of your mother's boyfriends, right? Yes, one of my mother's mother's boyfriends. So this so, is before the locker room incident. Well, he yeah. So I walk in, and Harold starts it up again. Hey, look who's here! It's Dickless Dick. My God, it's true. You really are Dickless. You're not only the ugliest boy in the God. Well, anyway, it just keeps just getting worse, and I am seething mad. And he is laughing derisively. 
So I walk over to him. I slap both hands over his ears, stunning him. He raises his hands to his ears, and I punch him as hard as I can in the throat with my fist. Now he doubles over, and I catch him in the chin with my knee and shoot his head backwards. He collapses in a heap, and I raise my foot. I'm about to stomp him. When I see the look in the other two boys' faces, And I realized I could kill him if I did what I was about to do. God. And I stop. I my foot stops one inch from his face. And I step back and I look at the two other boys. They're cowering. I say, Do you want some of this? And they both put their hands up like, leave us alone. Meanwhile, the guy is just like writhing in agony. He's like the showers on top of him. The water's coming down. Water's pouring all over him. It's something out of carry. Yeah. Was he bleeding? No. No. Okay. No, no blood. Just tremendous physical pain. And, and you were all naked during this too? <laughs> we're all naked. <laughs> sure. But this is something out of carry. It I have is. suddenly developed this monster with superhuman powers. I have devastated this kid. I have broken every rule at St. John's. Yeah. We never fight. I never saw another fight in all the years I was there. But I have lost it. I have broken the taboo. And these three boys are terrified of me. So I leave the, the shower. I finish. Son of a bitch, the guy recovers. And he comes over to me just as I finish dressing, and he tr- wants me to meet him. No. Wants me to meet him after school. And I stand up, and he sees the look on my face, and he realizes that this time I really might kill him. Wow. And I just walk away. And that was the end of that. But here's the problem. Those three words, creepy, loser, kid, were imprinted somewhere in my psyche for the rest of my life. Yeah. They summed up how I felt about myself during the worst period of my life. Yeah. And and the problem is I couldn't get rid of those. I could not get rid of that phrase. Anytime I hit a low spot, memories of the creepy loser kid would hit me. Yeah. So that's my low point. Yeah, that's it does And we're only halfway through high school. There's more. Well let's um tell me just a little bit about Mr. Curran, because he he was obviously a big supporter of you. And so like your introduction to him was his uh teaching fractions with the Oraz method. Uh tell me about that incident. We're it's the seventh grade and um we have this really cool math teacher named Mr. Curran, Ed Curran. He tells lots and lots of jokes, but the thing that really grabs our attention is the day he wants to teach us how to do fractions. And so the thing is, when you divide by fractions, you take the fraction and you turn it upside down and divide that way. Uh-huh. So he asked Peter Strauss, the smallest boy in the, in the class, to come up. And he says, Peter, I want you to be a hero. I want you to help me teach everyone how to divide by fractions. Are you willing to do this? And Peter says, yes, sir, I, I, get, I guess so. He says, well, get up here on the desk with me, Peter. And so the two of them climb up on Mr. Curran's desk. He says, Peter, face me. 
with your back to the other students. I'm going to grab your ankles, but I don't want you to be afraid. And before Peter can even protest, I mean, he's turned ash white. Mr. Curran grabs him by the ankles and flips Peter upside down and dangles him from the desk. (laughs) Peter screams and his face turns red. His shirt comes out. So we all see his belly button. We see his socks. We see (laughs) Peter like writhing, dangling in midair like a puppet on a string. And Mr. Kern, he just smiles at everybody beatifically. This is how you divide by fractions. From now on, if you want to divide three by one quarter, you flip Peter Strauss upside down (laughs) and you will get your answer. Gives here, man, for Peter. And so we all start clapping. And Peter says, Mr. Kern, can I get down, please? <laughs> that was a very creative, uh, very was. creative way of teaching that. And, you know, it's funny because, like, so many um, nowadays, I don't think you could, teachers could get away with doing that. Oh, no. But, oh, but it's oh, still oh, effective. Oh, oh, and you we, remember it, you know, you remember it decades well, there's later. One more, there's one more, there's one more, there's one more thing I left out. So everyone says, but Mr. Curran, why do you call it the Oroz method? Because how does Zorro divide by fractions? He turns his name upside down. <laughs> Oroz method. Ha, huh, yeah, he had to be there to get it. But it, really creative guy, very warm, very funny. He made us laugh. And and he uh was probably the most, as far as teachers go, the one who who made sure to to take you aside and he kept an eye on me. Can I tell you the story about the time I watched the football game? Yeah. So let's fast forward one year. It's the eighth grade. So there's this high junior high school across the street where I would take my dog Terry to run on a Sunday afternoons because you know huge campus. So I take Terry to the uh, back part of this school where they do the uh, football uh, practice. And I see a hundred, maybe a hundred and fifty men screaming their heads off at a flag football game. And they're about a hundred yards away, and I just stop because this is weird. I've never seen anyone back there in my life. And now there's a hundred and fifty people, you know, cheering like it's the Super Bowl or something. I just stand there staring, and there's something really weird about these football players. First of all, I'm sorry to use this word, but they were spastics. These are the most <laughs> unathletic men I had ever – they did not move like football players. They, they were weird. They didn't move right. The second thing was every time they tackled a player – all 22 men jumped on top. They had this giant bonfire of humanity. They're all wiggling around, screaming with delight at tackling this man. And I'm thinking, what in the hell is going on here? I'm, I'm what, 13, 14 years old? I have no idea what's going on. And there's like these cheerleaders, but they aren't very pretty. They're big, husky you know, Viking cheerleaders with, you know, blonde wigs and pom-poms, and they're screaming weird cheers like, hey, hey, hi-ho, come on, fairies, let's go, hit them high, hit them low, hit them in the cherries, you know, they're just like screaming these crazy, you have no these idea. crazy cheers. I have no idea what they're doing. So 
this really pretty girl about my age, she's a teenager, comes over and she says, hello, you know, I'm Daphne or whatever. And who are you? Do you like football? Would you like to come sit with me? Terry, my dog, sees this girl and he comes over and for the first time, he growls. It's the first time he's ever growled at anyone. This is the first time my dog has, he didn't even growl at the ambulance workers. He growls at this girl. She's terrified. She like jumps back four feet. You know, it's impressive. <laughs> she says, he won't bite, Willie. I said, oh, oh, no, I don't think so. But Terry literally is touching the side of my leg. That's how close he is. He's sitting at attention, but he's like guarding me. And she says, well, if you won't bite, would you still like to come over and sit with me? And I look at Terry, and Terry like kind of shakes his head, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I says, well, uh, no, I better not, you know, but, but thanks for the offer, and thanks for talking with me. So the next day, I go to school, and I go to Mr. Kern. He is the only human being in my entire world that I think I could actually ask this question to. Hmm. And I and I tell Mr. Kern, I said, Mr. Kern, what do you what do you think was going on here? And Mr. Kern turns white. I mean, he is ashen face. He looks around. We're you know, it's after class. We've got 10 minutes to get to the next class, but the room is empty. It's just him and me. And here's a lonely, emotionally disturbed 14-year-old boy asking Mr. Kern to explain <laughs> homosexuality. <laughs> now, here's the deal. Let's say Mr. Kern tells me exactly what, what, the, what the scoop is. And I go tell some kid at lunch. And this kid goes home and says, oh, guess what, Mom? Mr. Kern told us about these people called homosexuals. Uh-huh. You follow me? He would be fired. If one word escapes my lips, his career could be over. I don't yeah. know this, but he's terrified of talking to me, but he does it anyway. He says, will you keep this between us, but I'll explain it to you. And he, he, there wasn't, he wasn't gay. He was just a guy who cared about me, and he took a huge chance on me huge chance on me. And he would do so throughout my high school career. Let me just back up and talk about Columbine. Columbine High School, Colorado. These social, socially isolated monsters go out and buy every weapon they can get their hands on and murder innocent teenagers, classmates, because People are mean to them. Yeah. I am no different. I am just as socially alienated as the monsters at Columbine. But I wouldn't dream of hurting a classmate because I had a man like Ed Curran who was always there to comfort me. And I mean, I loved my school. I knew I, knew I was alienated, but no one was mean to me. They just avoided me. That's all they did. They weren't mean. And after I nearly killed the bully, not one person ever said another mean word. And, you know, if other, if other kids 
Like if all these kids that are doing school shootings, like what if they had? What if they had a Mr. Curran? Thank you. Thank you. This man is what you call an unsung hero. No one would ever know this story if I didn't tell you. But this guy was an unsung hero. And he just did it because he cared. He just did it because he cared. And I got other great stories about Mr. Curran, but those are some of the best ones right there. Good guy. Yeah, he sounds like it. Uh, So moving on, let's talk about the grocery store and both your your initial incident with the grocery store and then uh, what happened later on. Oh, wow. You just you just want all the dirt, don't you? <laughs> so we're talking about the eighth grade. Now, remember, the eighth grade is where I quit the school play. I quit the basketball team. And I didn't go out for the spelling bee because I was sick and tired of coming in second to Nancy Paxton. I was being ostracized because of the Boy Scout incident where they realized how poor I was. So I'm riding my bike home. There's a neighborhood grocery store called Wine Gardens. And I'm feeling sorry for myself. And I go in the grocery store and I steal a bunch of chocolate. I go home. Maybe I even steal a comic book on the way out, Batman. So here I am at home reading Batman, eating chocolate, (laughs) a reward. (laughs) A really, you know, a nice evening. Yeah, it's a great night. Maybe... Maybe this happens three times, four times. I don't know. So you're on your way to becoming a criminal, possibly. Yeah, I am a little juvenile delinquent. So here I am walking in the store for the fifth time. And a guy comes up behind me and grabs me by the collar and says, come with me. Well, it's a school. I mean, it's a store detective. I'm really not as uh, uh, sneaky as I thought I was. He sees he catches me red handed. I got the stuff in my pockets. He takes me into um, the back mm-hmm. and he throws me in the cigarette locker because there's like wire around it. It kind of gives the illusion of prison if you can get the uh, the symbolism here. Okay. A cigarette locker. I've never heard of that. Is that like a well, big... Well, employees are known to steal things from the store. Employees could just as easily take these expensive boxes of cigarettes and either smoke them themselves or sell them. So they have to literally lock up the cigarettes from their own employees. That's called the (laughs) lock, you know, that's the locker. Okay. So I'm sitting in this locker and this guy is a, is a hard ass. And this man just stares at me. And then he like says, hand me your jacket, son. So I, I, I take my jacket off and he reaches inside and about, six candy bars spill to the floor. (laughs) And then the guy just like looks around. And before I even know what happens, he hits me on the back of my head. I mean, he he hits hard. He stuns me. (laughs) And then he screams at me and he says, what in the hell is wrong with you, kid? Oh my God. The humiliation was worse than the blow. Sure. And he starts to write up this report. Now, this guy cannot keep his mouth shut. He's writing up a report, and he's giving me the lowdown of my future. Son, you are a juvenile delinquent. There are consequences to your theft today. We are going to call a squad car. We're going to take you downtown later on. If the judge feels like it, he may throw the book at you. 
you very well may end up in the Gatesville schools for boys. Do you know how to fight? Uh, no, sir. He says, well, you sure the hell better learn how to fight because those tough boys up at Gatesville are going to beat the crap out of you. Oh, my <laughs> God. God. I, am, I am shaking like a leaf. This guy has me thinking I'm going to the penitentiary for stealing candy bars. Why am I not? I'm a naive kid. I don't know anything. Uh huh. Well, finally, he shuts up. <laughs> and leaves you to your own thoughts. He just kind of like, but we're just sitting there. I don't even know what we're waiting for. And I'm so scared I don't say a word. Finally, he gets bored. And he looks at my books. I'm carrying, I carried my school books in. And he picks up my algebra book. And then he looks at my Latin book. Now, here's the funny thing about St. John's. Why they made us learn Latin, I will never know. <laughs> but it's a college prep school. And they made us learn Latin. And I, to this day, I still know the Lord's Prayer in Latin. Uh, Pater <laughs> Noster, Chius and Caelus, Sanctificutor Nomen Tuum, Edwiniat Regnum Tuat, Fia Voluntas, Agnosium Ad Nauseam. You never know when you need to use that. <laughs> oh, you never know when the Lord's Prayer in Latin might come in handy. Well, anyway, this guy is looking at my Latin book, and he doesn't, doesn't know what, what Latin is. This is not an educated guy. He doesn't even know what Latin is. And this piece of paper falls out, and he picks it up. In big red letters, it's a Latin test, and I have gotten a 94 on it. This is the equivalent of an A. And in the margin, it says, great work, Rick, exclamation point, exclamation point. So the detective, like, stares at the test. And then he stares at me with this, like, look of in incredulity on his face. Then he holds up the, the test with one hand, holds it high, and shakes a little in case I'm too stupid to know what he's doing. And he says, hey, kid, what the hell is this? <laughs> Sir, that, that is my Latin test. Latin? What in the hell is Latin? <laughs> um, Latin, sir, it, it's uh, it's the ancient language of Italy. <laughs> says, I've never heard of Latin. Does anyone speak Latin anymore? And I said, well, not really, not unless you, you're a priest or something. This uh, Latin is the language Julius Caesar used. Julius Caesar? you got to be kidding me. Why are you learning a dead language? Um, that's a good question, sir. I, I ask myself that question all the time. <laughs> um, I learn Latin because they make me learn it whether I like it or not. And the guy just like stares at me. Ten seconds pass. I have a question. What kind of school makes you learn a dead language? And you made an A on this test? The guy just like stares at me. And I, I'm, I, I think I know where this is going, and I don't like it. Finally, he speaks up. He says, well, I'll be damned. It looks like you have brains. Why the hell did a smart boy like you do a dumb thing like this? Well, here's the deal. I have a really big mouth. I have a smart mouth. I like the sass. <laughs> I like the sass back. It's probably got you know, me in trouble. I hate authority. I hate everything to do with authority. 
But this is the one time in my life when I didn't sass back because the guy was right. And here's the worst part. He wasn't even done yet. What the hell use is there for Latin? What kind of school do you go to? I go to St. John's, sir. It is a private school next to Lamar High School. A private school? Wait a minute. You're talking about that rich kid's school over in River Oaks, right? Well, <laughs> I don't even want to say a word. I'm just sick in my stomach. Yeah, Yes, sir. Yes, that's the one. You cannot be serious. You go to St. John's. Do you have an ounce of pride? Oh. How many kids would die to go to a school like yours? Can you answer that question? I don't know if embarrassment can kill, but I was I was literally on the critical list at this point. He wasn't even being sarcastic anymore. He meant it. He meant it. That's thank you. This guy was actually curious to understand what would make a kid with my advantages do something inexplicable. <sighs> it was such a good question. I was asking myself the same thing. Was my life really so bad that stealing candy bars was going to make a difference. Well, we weren't done yet. He looks at me like I'm some pampered little rich boy who is too cheap to pay for a couple of candy bars. I wanted to tell him I wasn't rich, but he wasn't. You know, he wasn't interested in my excuses. He had already written me off. Yeah. Well, at this moment, the manager, the store manager walks in. His name was uh, Mr. Ocker. Uh And I know this man. And unfortunately, he knows me too. Mr. Ocker uh, recognized me immediately. And I died again when I saw the look of uh, disappointment on his face. I mean, he was actually hurt to realize it was me. Here's the deal. Mr. Ocker was my mother's hero. Mm. that's how he knew me. He's like, this is a kindly, you know, gray-haired guy, maybe 50 years old. And he knew me because my mother had bounced a check or two, or maybe three over the years. (laughs) And every time Mr. Ocker had refused to file charges, he had always patiently worked with her, given her time to catch up. He didn't even chew her out. And my mother worshipped this man. Thanks to him, she didn't have a criminal record. She always found a way to catch up eventually. Sounds like a good guy. So mom was always telling me, you know, Rick, you know, I really like that Mr. Ocker. He is a good man. And then she'd go out and bounce another check with this guy. (laughs) So here you have it. The mother bounces checks and the kid gets caught stealing. Are we a pair? I could not imagine what crossed Mr. Ocker's mind. Yeah. And I didn't want I didn't even want to know the answer. But I just I just hung my head and looked at the floor. Well, he did the same thing for me, he did for my mother. He took mercy on me. He asked me to to sign the form the detective had written up to admit my guilt, and then he took a long look at me. Rick, I am not going to press charges but I do have a favor to ask. <laughs> Please do not do this again. Can I, have, can I have your word on that? No, sir. You have my absolute word. This will not happen again. I mean that. Good. But wait, I'm not done yet. 
I want you to tell your mother what you did. Oh. And to be sure you keep your word, I want your mother to come speak to me the next time she is in the store. Will you do that for me? Oh, God. I nodded. Yes. Yes, sir. It's probably a worse punishment than going to penitentiary. Right. Well, so Mr. Ocker leaves, but the detective is sitting there like with the big grin on his face. He hands he hands me my book bag and he says, here's your Latin book, kid. Keep up that good work. Oh, <laughs> gosh. So I have this theory about life. I, I'm getting back to fate. I think, I think there's two ways we can look at this. Yes, I was emotionally disturbed. But sometimes I wonder about divine inspiration. You know, we believe that God can put an idea in our head that will help us. Why don't people ever ask if God puts an idea in our head that leads us astray? I, I call it divine blindness or cosmic blindness. What if? I like it. What if? What if God said, this kid needs to learn a lesson. I'm going to take his judgment away. I'm going to completely remove it, and I'm going to let him make a mistake. You know, we all know that good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. So would it really be the weirdest thing in the world if fate does exist for people to make mistakes for their own good? Seems fair. One of the things that stands out in your story is how some of these people were just so kind, like even the punishment that the manager of the story gave you, like it was, it was still kind of a kind, All like right, a thoughtful so punishment. Let, let me respond to that immediately. So you're, you're looking at a deeply disturbed kid who does not go col- Columbine. And yeah. why not? Because people like Mr. Chidsey, like Mr. Kern, and now Mr. Auker, step up just as I'm about to fall off the railroad. Yeah. You see what I'm getting? But I want to tell you what happened next. I'm riding home on my bike, and I cannot get it out of my head that this man has said, please don't do this again. I have a favor to ask. You're talking to a kid with authority issues. I am telling you, he reached the other side of me. You know, I've got this prickly porcupine side, but if you talk to me the certain way, I'm a puppy dog inside. If he had tried to be authoritarian, he would have just pushed you away. If he had chewed me out like the detective, I would have tuned him out. I would have whatever. But he had me wagging my tail. I I saw why my mother loved this man. He had just given me Maybe the best lesson in decency and gentleness I had ever seen. And he had given me a second chance. Yeah. And I didn't steal from that store. (laughs) I I somehow managed to stay out of Gatesville thanks to his kindness. Yeah. A simple act of kindness. He had taught me decency and he had given me my honor back. So let's fast forward now. Let's see. That was the eighth grade. We're in the 10th grade now. And this guy, Harold, has just called me a creepy loser kid. And I'm reeling. I'm, I'm, at, I'm at this low point. Mm-hmm. My father's just told me I'm not going to get that third operation. So I make three decisions. 
I look at myself in the mirror and realize that the St. John's girls are untouchable because they would be laughed out of their bobby socks being seen with the school leper. It's awful. Dating is out of the question. I'll have to wait till college. The second thing is I'm going to get a scholarship to college. I'm going to make the best grades I humanly can because I have nothing else to live for. Hmm. But my father has just told me he had emptied my college pledge fund to pay for my face treatment. So now you know you don't have a way to pay for college. I don't believe a word this man. I bet you there never was a dime in that college pledge fund. I don't trust this man one inch. So if I'm going to get to college, I better think of a way to pay for it myself. Yeah. I need a job. I only apply one place. I go back to that grocery store. <laughs> the logical place to go. Uh, here I am, a, a, a borderline juvenile delinquent kid who has stolen from this store Mr. Ocker is still the manager, and he knows who I am, and I, and I apply. And he says, thank you, and I say, if we have an opening, I'll consider you. <laughs> He's like, we already had an interview in the cigarette locker, so we can. <laughs> a month goes by. One night, I'm walking through the store with my mother. It's a Friday night. It's closing time, 845. And Mr. Auker, like, I, I see him, and he sees us. We're in the checkout line. And from about, well, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 feet away, he spots us, and he makes a beeline. He walks straight to us. And he says something pleasant to my mother, who, who turns red because she has such a big crush on her, on her hero. Uh-huh. You know, and I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> And the kid, I mean, and then Mr. Ocker turns and looks at me and he says, um, Rick, are you still interested in the job? And I said, absolutely. Well, can you work tomorrow? And I said, well, sure. It's a Saturday. I don't have school. He says, all right, I want you here at, I guess it was like 730 in the morning, you know, half an hour before the store opens. Mm-hmm. I said, can you do that? And I said, yeah, yes, sir. I'll be here. Here's something sad. I'm going to have to say this. My mother beamed at me. Her hero had just given her son a job. Yeah. I honestly cannot remember another warm moment after that, but she was so proud of me she couldn't see straight. The last positive experience with your mother. Oh, my God. Here I am, a sophomore in high school. Yeah. But at any rate, I was there on the next morning. So let me tell you how my day turned out. It turned out weird. They had this special on called the strawberry sale. You got to get four little plastic containers of strawberries for a dollar. Now, don't ask me what the what the charisma is here, but this was a big deal. <laughs> I mean, there are some deals you just can't pass down. <laughs> oh my God! Four little carton tins of or cartons of uh, plastic cartons of strawberries for a dollar. How do you beat that? <laughs> And my mother says, oh, I love that sale. It's usually $3 for the same amount. Here's what happens. Mr. Auker didn't say a word to me. He says, he just, he just wordlessly points 
to the back. And so uh, I, I see where he's pointing. It's the uh, produce se section. The produce manager takes me in the cooler. And I see these giant mountains of cartons full of strawberries. Huh. And it's my job to transfer the strawberries from the big cartons and put them in the four small plastic containers. That's a lot of strawberries to move into containers. I don't know if Mount Olympus is taller than this than the mountain. <laughs> he says, "Are you? you're not afraid of heights, are you? And I look at the ladder and I say, I'm going to be 15, 20 feet in the air. I said, no, sir, I'm not afraid. He says, well, then get to work. And actually, something funny happens. You know, I'm, I'm a prep school kid. You don't make it through prep school without being competitive. Mm -hmm. There was so much demand for these strawberries. <laughs> I actually got a kick out of like staying ahead of the crowd. I mean, this is the Klondike. <laughs> strawberry gold rush i i am packing these strawberries like crazy but i'm starting to resent this job i'm like an overly analytical kid who lives in his brain i'm constantly reading working chess problems and here i am doing this boring mindless job how do i keep my sanity uh -huh. well it's simple i reward myself <laughs> I allow myself to eat the largest strawberry from every carton. That's my reward. <laughs> now, now that brings up a question. Do you feel like, did you feel that that was stealing again? Oh, of course it was stealing. <laughs> but they were exploiting me. I mean, I, I was, they never told me this is what I was going to be doing. This, they had just, well, here's what, I, here's what you have to understand. I thought this was going to be my job every week. Oh. I thought they had hired me as a lifetime strawberry sacker. <laughs> you, you realized you were in a prison made of strawberries. Right. I am pissed off. They have tricked me. They have deceived me into this mindless, boring, stupid job that is below my dignity. Listen, I'm... That Mr. Ocker had held on to a grudge for you stealing years ago, and this was him paying off. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't really see it as punishment, but you have a <laughs> you have a point. All I know is, all I know is this: I had a serious attitude problem, and the only way I was going to continue to do this job was to like give myself a strawberry every ten minutes or so. But it was really kind of funny, yeah. You know, because I realized. I finally figured out what, how I had gotten my job. Mr. Ocker didn't have anyone else to do this. <laughs> he, he had, for some reason, I guess someone called in sick or someone quit or something, but it's Friday night at 8.45, and he didn't have another person on earth to do this job. It's just pure fate. Those are my four letters. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but Lana Turner was working at a coffee shop or maybe it was a malt shop when a movie producer came by and saw her in her sweater and asked if she wanted to be in the movies. I'm telling you, this was my Lana Turner move moment. I mean, we were both 16. Maybe she was a little cuter than I was, but we both got our jobs through fate. I was the only possible solution to his strawberry problem.
And how did you uh, how did you feel about strawberries uh, at the end of the day? Oh my God! It took me about ten years before I ate another <laughs> strawberry. <laughs> but something pretty cool happened. I was there for nine hours. I went without breaks. The, the manager, the produce manager, was so grateful. He went and brought me food so I could eat with one hand and do strawberries with the other. I mean, I was like the superstar for a day. Nice. I, I mean, I was Mr. Strawberry. <laughs> so sometime around six, I'd been there like 10 hours with no break, overwhelming boredom. I'm out of here. I'm not coming back. But you know what? The produce manager said, well, I think you can go now. But thank you. You did a really good job. And I was about to walk out the door when out of nowhere, Mr. Ocker spotted me and came out from his office. And he called me and said, um, Rick, come over here. He said, young man, uh, your supervisor said you did a very good job today. I'm sure it wasn't much fun, but you stayed with it. And I want to say thank you. Good for you. So here I have some good news. When you come back next Saturday, I'm going to have you start sacking groceries. You can make tips that way and, uh, you know, put some money in your pocket. Do you want to do that? Will you come back next Saturday? Nice. I said, oh, absolutely. I had not realized this was emergency duty. (laughs) But you know what mattered the most? This guy thanked me. You know, I left the store and I was proud of myself. Yeah. You know, and he took a chance on you. I, I th- he did. You know, I, I didn't realize it, but he had, I had passed a test of some sort. And I guess I had that, you know, prep school discipline to thank for that. They taught us that you do your homework whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. They made us take courses like Latin where I didn't care a bit. But I did the homework because St. John said, if you accept the responsibility, you get the job done. I mean... This school was teaching me lessons that were invaluable without me even realizing what they had done for me. Yeah, important lessons. How did working at the grocery store over the coming couple of years change you and change your outlook and and shift what was possible for you? Well, that's that's a good question. I would have never made it to my senior year without Mr. Ocker because his decision to give me this job was a life-altering moment. This was his second simple act of kindness. So let me explain what happened. I am so introverted, I can't, I can't, and I, and you have to understand, I still have these scars. Yeah. I go around thinking that everybody thinks I'm the ugliest person in creation. I have no social skills, and I feel unloved, and I feel unwanted, I'm a pretty sad case. I am the creepy lo- loser kid, mm-hmm. which kind of sums it up. One day, this boy about my age, his name was Costas Scandalus. What a great name. He's a Greek kid. That is a great name. Goes to um, Lamar, the high school across the street near St. John's. He says, I don't know you, kid, but you are the worst sacker I've ever seen in my life. Like he starts by insulting me. Doesn't even ask me my name. He says, didn't anyone ever teach you what to do? And the answer is actually no, I didn't know what to do. 
Oh, and this is this is at the grocery store. So he's saying you you put items in the bag. I threw the bread on the bottom and the cans on top, and I broke half the eggs. <laughs> the fragiles on the bottom. I am, and I and I stacked the, and I stuffed this bag so much they rip. Some of them rip. It's it's embarrassing. I have to do it all over again. And the thing is, I'm this prep school kid with no common sense. All I have is book learning. I'm brilliant. And I'm stupid. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I have nothing ever comes to me by accident. I always have to learn the hard way. And this boy actually kind of takes pity on me. He says, look, let me show you some tricks. Put the heavy stuff on the bottom. Put the fragile stuff on the top. Don't make the bags heavy or it will rip. (laughs) If you really want a secret... Put a second bag for extra strength, but don't let anyone catch you do it because it cuts into store profits. But the customers will love you for it. So be sneaky, but if that's a big order, double bag everything. So I finally do it right. And this lady smiles at me and says, would you take my groceries to this car for me? So I look at Costas and he nods. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. So I wheel these groceries out. This is a first for me. I've been there for a month, don't know anything. And I place three perfectly double-bagged grocery sacks in the trunk. And as I turn to go, the lady hands me a quarter, 25 cents. Which was, which was I don't know, at in, in that time, maybe like a couple bucks. Uh, my salary was 150 cents an hour, $1.50. Wow. This woman had just given me a 17% raise. Nice. I thought, gee, if I take out one bag every 10 minutes, I could like double my salary. Yeah. Now, this is the incentive I need. One day, I started talking to somebody, and they gave me a bigger tip. Uh Uh-huh. You know, I'm telling you. You realize that by being friendly. I am being paid 25 cents a trip to try to be nice to people. Uh (laughs) I am telling you, Dale Carnegie could have worked out a scale, I mean, a trick like this. 25 (laughs) cents a trip. I am coming out of my shell. I am starting to talk to people. I'm starting to learn their names. I try to find something to compliment them about. Maybe they have a nice car. Maybe the lady's wearing a nice dress. Maybe I like her hair. I'm, I'm, I, let me take another step here. No one at this store is treating me like a leper. My ravaged yeah. face means nothing to these people. They don't see my face. The boys who worked at this store, they were nice to me. They were just as poor as I was. My, my socioeconomic, my socioeconomic status meant nothing to these people. Yeah. Why else would they be working here? And and they didn't call you Dick, right? They didn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Dick was my old my old name. My manager, Mister Ocker, handed me a name badge and said, "What do you want the name to say?" And I said, "I want it to say Rick Archer on it." This was my new identity. But here's the deal. There was no escape for me at St. John's. In in role theory, people see you Mm -hmm. a certain way. You're a waitress, or you're a dance teacher, or you're a 
you know, or you're a janitor. You are who they see you as, and it's very difficult. Yeah, it's I've 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 changed uh, careers a few times in life, and depending on you know each time I switch what I say I do, like the with new people, and people look at you a different way. Totally different response. It's, it's interesting. Like, um, so I, I actually I traded stocks. Uh, it was like a day trader for a while. And people, if you say you're a day trader, people are like, wow, you must be really smart. Yeah. And if you then when I was a, a dance teacher, people do not go, oh, wow, you must be really smart. They go, oh, wow, you must have been dancing since you were a child. Yeah, yeah. Totally oh, different we... impressions just by the role. But let me tell you what happened to me. Here is the kid who is in a hole so deep at St. John's, there was no escape. I was a well-established, permanent nobody. I had been there seven years, and they all saw me a certain way. But here at this grocery store, I had a fresh start. I finally had a chance to kind of like talk to people and like, you know, get to know people and, and chat and be a normal guy. Yeah. It was literally a life saving, life-altering job because it turned me into a, a new person. I would have never crawled out of my personality the deep hole I was in if it hadn't been for this job. Here we go with the fate again. I got knocked down, but then the universe throws me a break to get me back on my feet again. If you enjoyed my interview with Rick, please rate and review Intriguing Interviews at Apple Podcasts. Because if you don't, I'll pop every pimple on your face. Every single one. I mean it. And if you want to learn more about Rick Archer, visit ssqq.com. And you'll learn more about Rick in the next episode of Intriguing Interviews. In our third interview, you'll get to hear how his life took a sudden turn for the worst and you'll learn about the intriguing people who tried to save him from disaster, including a woman who owed her wealth to Texas's biggest mafia boss, and the man who was the spy sent to kill Hitler. That and more next time on Intriguing Interviews.